Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, today we have the opportunity of hearing a superb historian and theologian talking to us about the doctrine of predestination. He is Professor John L. Thompson, Professor of Historical Theology, and Galen and Susan Biker, Professor of Reformed Theology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena. Dr. Thompson is just an outstanding historian of the Reformation, written many books. One of his most interesting ones is entitled Reading the Bible with the Dead, what you can learn from the history of exegesis that you can't learn from exegesis alone. That's a fascinating study. came out from Erdman's in 2007. He also is the volume editor of the Reformation Commentary on Scripture from InterVarsity Press. He did Genesis 1 to 11 in that 28-volume series of Reformation exegetical comment. Well, he was at Beeson just recently to deliver the 25th Annual Reformation Heritage Lectures here on our campus, and he presented a series of lectures related to belief and believing in the Reformation, this one on the doctrine of predestination, its biblical and historical roots, and particularly John Calvin's presentation of it, is one of the finest lectures I have ever heard on predestination. And so I'm delighted that we can share it with you. I think you're going to enjoy this and be informed by it. Professor John L. Thompson speaking at Beeson Divinity School on the Doctrine of Predestination. In my last two talks, I've been thinking out loud with the Protestant Reformers about aspects of our faith that entail beliefs and decisions and practices. All of us, I would pray, believe in Christ as Savior, but almost certainly we all have different impressions about what the Bible means and about which beliefs and practices are more important than others. And it's also likely that we have all met professing Christians who've made different decisions or come to different beliefs than our own, and we may or may not view their positions as valid. On Tuesday, I described how Calvin tried to build a bridge to moderate Roman Catholics in his day by suggesting that we actually don't have to agree on everything the Bible says in order to be saved together. Yesterday, I tried to complicate how we understand and apply the Bible's teaching by asking, in a sense, how we can use the Bible without pandering to our own blind spots. In other words, how do we navigate through our consciences to hear the Word of God and then return to our consciences with all that God wants us to hear? Today, I want to move into a topic that pushes further into the mysteries of the human person in his or her encounter with the Word of God. In brief, I want to talk about what we learn about the Bible and what we learn about the human will when we try to hear what the Reformers and a few of their pre predecessors said about the often upsetting doctrine of predestination. Now, it's common knowledge that one of the watchwords of the Reformation was sola gratia, that we are saved by grace alone. In fact, that was part of our liturgy on Wednesday, uh, Tuesday. 
among Protestants or Catholics, it's hard really to imagine anyone complaining about grace. We like grace. It's a wonderful thing to be saved by grace, and we can't get enough of it, at least in our songs. I had a roommate for a while after college who worked in campus ministry, as did I. Among the annoying habits he had was this one. He loved to wander around the apartment singing Amazing Grace, except when he got to the end of the first line, he'd look over at me and moan that saved a wretch like you. This may have been his favorite joke. It actually was not mine. I wonder, however, just how many of our parishioners appreciate the language of John Newton's hymn. Do we really have pews filled with self-proclaimed wretches? Or do people look on this language as just one more antique, one more quaint expression, like the Ebenezer that we used to raise when we sang, Come Thou Fount? Many hymnals have retired the Ebenezer, I am deeply sorry to report, and given us merely a glad commemoration, whatever that might be. Now, I can't look inside people's heads, but my suspicion is actually not many Christians think of themselves as wretches. Grace is great, grace is wonderful, but you know, we're not that bad ourselves. Don't get me wrong, I don't think the way to cultivate an appreciation for the grace alone by which we are saved, uh, I don't think that the way to cultivate that appreciation is to try to persuade people that they really are wretches. We may, in fact, have to let that word go, but I do think we need to be concerned for the dilution of the doctrine of grace, the tendency to extol God's grace and sovereignty and mercy only to turn around and act as if the Christian life were really a matter of what we do, not what God does. I have characterized this tendency as the problem of semi-Pelagianism, so let me define that. First of all, I know this is review for many of you, Pelagianism is named for Pelagius, an opponent of Augustine. And in Augustine's Confessions, he had a line of prayer that read, Give me the grace to do what you command, O Lord, and then command what you will. In other words, if God furnishes us with grace, no command can be too hard. Ev evidently, Pelagius hated that line. He thought God had already given us grace in the form of our ability to reason and to make decisions, and he thought that Augustine was basically a whiner. God's already given you what you need, Augustine, so just do it. Semi-Pelagianism is a somewhat softer teaching. It's a position linked with John Cassian, another contemporary of Augustine, and Cassian popularized a doctrine of grace that really runs more or less along the lines of Augustine, but with a crucial addendum. It is true that we cannot be saved except by the grace of God, but Cassian sometimes seems to add that we must make the first step toward God. Cassian's teachings on free will and grace are actually more subtle than sometimes credited. But there were later writers, especially on the eve of the Reformation, who were not very subtle at all, one of these was Gabriel Beale, against whom Luther would react so strongly. Beale taught that the one true thing you could know about God is that God will surely give grace to those who do their very best. 
Beale's line of thinking here is exactly along the lines of Benjamin Franklin. God helps those who help themselves. A line that I would wager many of your parishioners think is in the Bible. In response to Cassian and Beale and Franklin, I would assert that this is not the gospel, at least not as understood by Lutheran or Reformed theology. I'd also venture that semi-Pelagianism is alive and well in Christian churches today. It manifests itself in the way we have shifted the accent away from what God has done for us to what we must do, both for God and for ourselves. You can hear this in a good deal of preaching today. It's been described as the shift from doctrinal preaching to therapeutic preaching. God becomes an adjunct to our lives. God is a resource we use to solve our problems or to find fulfillment. The gospel is good news because it's about us and our problems. Truly, this is a temptation that every preacher faces. After all, congregations hire pastors to do something. Pastors usually find themselves in front of a church with problems, filled with people who have those problems. So why shouldn't they want to try to solve some of those problems? And what could be more fitting or convenient than to use the sermon as that problem-solving device? You present the Bible's analysis of these problems and then exhort people to just do what the Bible says. In many churches, Sunday services conclude with something called the charge and benediction. I have to confess, and this may just be my own little private opinion I'm sharing here, but I have to confess I often find this a depressing way to end a service of worship that was focusing on God, and then it, it, it ends as if it all comes down to whether I can hold up my end of the deal. I've got a friend who goes to another church in my town, and whenever we ask him about what sermon he heard, he's, he always says, oh, the same as usual, get out there and work. But if the purpose of the sermon is to solve people's problems, how else could you end? Make these good Christians do something. Now, in the same way, I know some Christians who are familiar with the idea that they are saved by grace, but for whom that notion seems to make no difference. They are sure that now that they've been saved, they must do something to please God. They must become worthy of the gift of God's grace, or they won't actually have it. Many Christians today also speak of saving grace as something that you can accept or reject. There's one thing the omnipotent God cannot do, it seems, and that is to force a person to become a Christian. So we sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. After one becomes a Christian, it seems equally true, at least in the minds of some, that it's still up to us, not God, to do the work of sanctification. It's all up to you. Will you let the Holy Spirit work in your life? You have to decide. Is that really the gospel? Is that who God is? Is this what grace means? Or at least, is this the whole truth? Some would say so. I hope to persuade otherwise by making a case that grace is a force in God's universe that is actually stronger than the human will and something more to be celebrated in our practice and in our preaching than the efficacy of the human will. I want to do this by arguing that there is an unbreakable connection between the Reformed doctrine of grace alone, which everybody loves, and the Reformed doctrine of predestination, which many people fear and avoid.
Now, at Fuller, I teach a course on Presbyterian confessions and Reformed theology, and usually my, my class is filled with Presbyterian students or those who are aspiring to be Presbyterian ministers, although now and then I get people from other traditions, and I, I always like that. I've had uh, PCA and Southern Baptist students take that course, and they contributed very nicely to it. Well, anyway, the first time I taught that course, which was quite some years ago, I tossed in a short lecture on the doctrine of predestination because that is a doctrine that forms a, has a significant place in the Second Helvetic Confession and in the Westminster Standards. I hadn't gotten very far when one of my students in the front row interrupted me. He bore on his face this beautiful, wonderful, angelic look of disbelief as he asked me, does anybody else know about this doctrine? I mean, I grew up in the Presbyterian Church, and I've never heard it mentioned. My parents were raised Presbyterians, and I'm pretty sure they've never heard of this. It's a curious thing when a Presbyterian or any Protestant hasn't even heard of this doctrine. I mean, if people in Calvin's tradition haven't heard of this doctrine, who has? It's ironic Presbyterians used to be the denomination that actually liked to talk about this doctrine. Now they pretend it doesn't exist, at least in polite company. A few years ago, my daughter came home from high school worship and reported that someone had mentioned predestination, and she said uh, to me and to my wife, we don't believe that, do we? As she looked from my nodding face to her mother's nodding face, face and back, her eyes grew wider and wider, and I really think that she expected us to tell her next that, oh, and we're also cannibals. <laughs> Predestination could be called the Bible's best kept secret, and I know why. The answer is just about what Luther would have said. You see, Luther and Calvin are really very close in their understanding of the bondage of the will and their doctrine of election, but only Calvin got a reputation for teaching about this doctrine. Why? Because even though Luther believed in the doctrine, he did not much teach it. And he didn't teach it a lot because every time you mention predestination, any Christian who is the least bit anxious comes out of the woodwork to worry that even though half an hour ago they thought God loved them, maybe they aren't predestined after all, and how can they ever know? So Luther preferred to let sleeping dogs lie. Not so Calvin, and traditionally not so the Presbyterian and Reformed tradition. I myself have come to agree with Calvin that there are benefits to knowing about election, and that such knowledge can have a beneficial effect on the preaching and hearing of the gospel. So now I want to give you an overview of the doctrine, particularly where we got it and why Calvin thought it was important. After that, I want to share some thoughts on why this doctrine is important for the integrity of the gospel. In one of my other courses, I assign students to read Calvin on predestination and write an essay on why Calvin thinks predestination is not unjust. One of the warnings I give them, and again, my students are by no means all Presbyterians. They are all over the denominational map. I warn them, don't shoot the messenger. That is to say, 
much of what Calvin is criticized for is really merely his articulation of what he found in the Bible as well as in later Christian tradition. Now, we don't have time to rehearse old biblical evidence for or against a doctrine of election, but I simply want to remind you that important precedents for the doctrine are found throughout the Bible. Many of these are Old Testament texts, such as the election of Jacob over Esau or the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. These texts are especially important to St. Paul, who also draws from the prophets, and his use of the potter and clay image from Jeremiah is fairly well known. In fact, there's probably no better passage than uh, Romans 9 through 11, where Paul struggles to explain how it is that so many of his fellow Jews could reject their Messiah, and he lays the problem squarely in the lap of God. You also find language of God electing and choosing, foreknowing, etc. in Acts, Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians, and 1 Peter, even as the Gospels report Jesus as speaking of the quote-unquote elect in various passages. Naturally, you would want to do some word studies on all these passages as well as some reflection on what the larger arguments are. My small point, though, is that the bulk of Calvin's doctrine cannot be claimed as speculation on his part. He really wants to be a biblical theologian, not a philosopher. At the same time, Calvin also benefited from plenty of previous discussion, too. So let me mention three other contributions, like Luther. Calvin was deeply indebted to the theology of Augustine. The Reformation could be characterized as an Augustinian revival. Augustine wrote at length on predestination and free will, mostly in controversy with Pelagius and his followers. For Pelagius, there was no such thing as a state of sin. True, there is the power of habit to contend with, and there are bad examples that surround us, but at every moment, the human will is still free enough to resist sin. For Augustine, the question of free will is much more complicated. Augustine was quite willing to say that our wills are free, which is to say we all constantly have the experience of making choices that seem unforced and free and even spontaneous. Augustine would say we can make all kinds of choices, we're free to please ourselves any way we want. But from the theological standpoint, there's still a problem. There's still a complication. We can choose anything we want, says Augustine. But what we want is always to sin. Of course, we dress that up. We, I, I, we, we dress that up so well. Um, I don't know if you're a big one on New Year's resolutions. I really am not. But one year, my wife, Marianne, asked me, well, are you going to make any New Year's resolutions tonight on New Year's Eve? And I thought about it briefly, and I said, yes. This year, I am going to find better rationalizations for what I do. I'm not sure if I carried that out or not. Augustine has a sophisticated understanding of the way the will works. The will is influenced by the heart's desire. You can't you can choose anything you desire. In fact, you really can't choose anything you don't desire, even if your desires are complicated and have many layers. The problem, though, for Augustine is that human desires are all messed up. If we truly knew what we were made for, we would desire God above all else. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, as Augustine prayed. But apart from grace, no sinner actually does desire God. 
Instead, we try to satisfy our restlessness by loving lesser things. We love stuff. We love pleasure. We use others to make ourselves feel good. We are addicted to self-love, Augustine would say, yet no matter how much we love ourselves or the world of things, we remain unsatisfied. Our wills do have a kind of freedom, but it's the freedom of an addict, an illusion we cling to. Who can do this repair work? Who can free us from our consuming self-absorption? For Augustine, only grace, only God. And Calvin stands firmly in this tradition. I want to include also a few words from Aquinas at this point, not because he directly influenced Calvin, but for two other reasons. First, he makes an important point about the will that I think you can find also in Calvin. Second, as the most important teacher in Roman Catholicism, he reminds us that a strong doctrine of predestination is not unique to Presbyterianism or to the Reformed tradition. Calvin would have had many differences with Aquinas, but they're really quite close on their understanding of divine sovereignty and divine election. What interests me, especially in Aquinas, and I think this is really cool, um, is the shift that occurred in his thinking. In one of his early works, Aquinas was convinced that God does choose and predestine who is to be saved, but God has to work this out without violating the human will. So Aquinas presents something like a checkmate theory in which God eventually wears down the elect until finally they capitulate and they choose God freely. And you can think of it as a series of chessboard moves or, or you could compare it to kind of the hound of heaven scenario. You meant to go visit the racetrack um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and buy liquor and squander your earnings, but you got lost on the way there and you inadvertently walked into a church and you tripped and hurt your ankle and had to sit there nursing it while a sermon was preached. And, hey, that's pretty interesting. Nailed another one. That was the early theory that Aquinas had. And, and, and I admire it. I don't adopt it, but I, but I love it just because it's just there's a kind of elegance there. And you can see what he was groping for. And that means he does value the human will. But when he revisits the topic years later in the Summa, he scraps the whole theory. The problem is that a checkmate theory makes God passive and reactive and less than sovereign and powerful. So instead, Aquinas came to speak of instrumental causation. Essentially, this means God acts in and on our wills and does so in such a way that God does not violate the integrity of our will. God acts to call us and save us then, not by bypassing our wills, but by acting through them. We become participants in our own redemption, and yet we are by no means the primary cause. I'll come back to this in a few minutes, but I've been in many churches where they sing a chorus to this effect, not footnoting Aquinas, I confess. Change my heart, O God, make it ever true. Change my heart, O God, may I be like you. Now, is that a good prayer? I think so. I think Aquinas would agree, and I think Calvin would also add an amen. Now, it wouldn't do to leave out Martin Luther, to whom Calvin really owed so much. I've already said Luther holds a high doctrine of predestination, but another important ingredient that Calvin may have gleaned from Luther pertains to the nature of faith. 
In my course on Reformation theology, I also have students write an essay on Luther and the meaning of Christian freedom, and they necessarily have to talk about what faith is, what faith does, and why, according to Luther, God wants faith and not our works. In studying Luther, students often wonder if he doesn't end up making faith itself into a work. Well, as a matter of fact, he doesn't. Luther repudiates the notion that faith is just an idea that we conjure up and then force ourselves to believe it, as if that were possible. Instead, faith has much more in common with confessing what we cannot do and even what we cannot believe on our own than with pretending we believe something that exists only as an idea for us. For Luther, faith is a gift, not a work. It comes as God's gift to us. It unites us with Christ. It brings to us the Holy Spirit. And here again, Calvin would agree. All of these themes recur in Calvin. What needs to be noted, however, is just why Calvin feels constrained to make predestination part of his preaching and teaching. And I would not want to exaggerate how much of a presence it has. Sometimes Calvin is accused of being obsessed with this doctrine, but he never set out to be so regarded. What rather happened was that he included a, a rather tidy section on predestination in his 1539 Institutes, and thereafter he was repeatedly attacked for his supposed heresy, even though he, his was mostly the traditional Augustinian view that had been restated by many medieval theologians. Now, there's nothing controversial about why Calvin wanted to discuss the doctrine. It comes down to his doctrine of Scripture and Revelation. In a word, if something is revealed to us in Holy Scripture, says Calvin, it's there because God wants it known. In other words, if the Bible reveals a doctrine, there must be some benefit in it for us. Calvin takes this approach to the entirety of the Bible and the whole sweep of Christian doctrine. Doctrine, he would say, is useful. God works through the Bible to change us and to restore us into his people. What benefit could be greater than that? Consequently, in the opening sections of Calvin's long treatment of predestination in the Institutes, he tells us that this doctrine carries three benefits for us. First, for me to know that my salvation derives not from my loveliness or my merit or even from my own great faith teaches me to be humble. I am not the author of my salvation. There's nothing about me that I can presume to have endeared me to God. Again, not only my own faith, but not even my once upon a time decision for Christ. Second, in light of the fact that we have been saved by God's free mercy, we also ought to learn gratitude for God's amazing generosity. Third, and perhaps the best of all for me, is to know that our salvation ultimately rests in God and not in our own powers or our own fierce resolution. To know that is to be freed from fear in the midst of our many dangers, toils, and snares. Here Calvin quotes John 10:28. My sheep shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. Now these three benefits constitute the whole purpose of knowing about predestination. This is what the doctrine is good for, to keep Christians humble, to make them thankful, 
and to comfort them, especially in times of trial and persecution. We must read Calvin with care. He does not suggest anything else you can do with this doctrine. Predestination does not invite us to fatalism or determinism. It does not tell us we can just stay in bed until the Holy Spirit drags us to the breakfast table. It does not imply that we can quit preaching or praying. We'll come back to this too in a moment, but it's a good place for us to begin to think about how this doctrine might actually instruct us today. Let me start with a story. For 15 years, my seminary had a close relationship with a struggling evangelical seminary in St. Petersburg, uh, Russia, not Florida. And um, four times a year, uh, a member of our faculty would volunteer time to teach there for two weeks. It was actually rarely a cushy assignment, although the winters were definitely worse than the summers. Back in 1999, I was asked to teach not one of our usual courses, but a single special course on Calvin and his doctrine of predestination. It turns out that there was a radio preacher in Russia at this time who was proclaiming with great vehemence that one of the greatest heresies facing the Protestant churches of Russia was the heresy of Calvinism. I was invited to teach on the topic so that students would have something like a first-hand understanding of Calvin instead of these radio rumors. Now, that someone should describe Calvinism as a heresy doesn't surprise me. People always have strong feelings if you talk about predestination. It's also common to find the doctrine discussed in ways that determine the outcome ahead of time. Usually, these fruitless discussions build on what I would describe as one of a number of possible false dichotomies. You've probably been in discussions where the question was framed like this, do you believe in predestination or do you believe that we have free will? The idea is that everybody uses free will, so we know we have it. And since predestination is the opposite of free will, no rational person could believe in that doctrine. There's a variation on this objection. Sometimes people ask, do you believe in divine sovereignty or in human responsibility? Here the emphasis is not so much on the potency of the will as on accountability for one's deeds. No one should be punished for doing something they did not intend or couldn't control. So if God has not destined me for holiness, clearly I can't be held accountable for my actions and therefore I shouldn't be punished. Of course, if we really believe this, governments too could never punish anyone for anything. Now, both of these dichotomies and questions assume that everybody knows what free will is and that predestination necessarily turns everyone into robots, even though no defender of the doctrine has ever granted any of these extremes. But free will is a complicated notion. It's probably less of a factor in our lives than we commonly think. As for the way God works in the universe, well, you know, that's complicated too. Divine sovereignty doesn't look much different most of the time than what we call the so-called laws of nature. What's worth noting, though, is that in the moment of sinning, most sinners would offer at least a token defense of their actions. You don't understand. I really need to do this. But they would also assert that this is really their own act 
initiate it, maybe desperately, for their own enjoyment or benefit. With some part of our personhood, we really do intend the actions we take, even though we are rarely, if ever, fully conscious of those intentions, intentions uh, or in control of them. Now, there's another kind of false dichotomy that's not noticed as often. I wish I could have met that radio preacher in Russia for a conversation, preferably in English. I suspect that what scared him about Calvinism was the fear that the human freedom and accountability that he treasured were being lost. But I would have asked that preacher if I'd had the chance, why would you want to use one kind of passage in the Bible in order to dismiss or veto the other. There certainly are texts in Scripture that support human responsibility. There is no doubt about that. But there are other texts that support divine sovereignty. Too often this argument plays these texts off one another, and that's a lose-lose proposition. Whatever position you're inclined to take, if you find yourself simply discarding a whole set of Bible verses, you've already made some kind of serious mistake. And that is true, whichever position you might favor. Now, in what I've said so far, I may have raised any number of questions for you, so let me address some of them by suggesting that while there are some things we can know because Scripture has revealed them to us, there are other things we cannot know. And that means there will be times when people throw objections to predestination in our face, and our best answer will have to be, I don't know. I think that's a good response. I think it's a biblical response. I think it's also especially appropriate for mortals. One thing we cannot pretend to know is everything about the mystery of God. God's mysterious will, mysterious plan, mysterious workings. This is actually a principle dear to classical Reformed theology that the finite cannot comprehend the infinite. God is the measure of human beings, not vice versa. There's much to learn about God in the Bible, but we do not learn everything. One thing we learn from the Bible is that God is the judge of the universe, and as such, God is also just. Abraham asks, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the answer to the question that is so strongly implied is yes. But that doesn't mean we always get to see the details worked out. If you read Calvin's four chapters on predestination in the Institutes, you will find that one of his most frequent assertions about God is that God is just. But if you watch closely, you'll also see that the modifier frequently standing in front of that word justice is this word inscrutable. Inscrutable. Calvin believes God is just because God says God is just. But that justice is often inscrutable. And Calvin doesn't presume to measure God's justice by a visible or human standard. Now, we would do well to ponder our doctrine of revelation at this point. Is the point of the Bible to tell us what we already know, as some Enlightenment figures asserted, or to tell us things we don't know? Let me repeat the question I asked yesterday. Can the Bible tell us something that isn't immediately apparent to us, intuitively obvious? Can it tell us things we might not like or don't want to know? 
Calvin's understanding of Scripture as revelation is often explained in terms of his doctrine of accommodation, the idea that God speaks to us as mothers and fathers speak to their children. So when your child says to you, Daddy, where do babies come from? Chances are good. An accommodated answer is what is called for here, rather than charts and diagrams. All right, so why did God elect only some? I think Calvin does a good job of piecing an answer together from Scripture, an answer that's basically an extrapolation from what he knows of human sin, divine justice, and God's grace. But I think he's far surer of his answer to another, perhaps smaller question. Why did God reveal election? Calvin thinks he speaks for God when he argues that we are better off knowing of God's sovereignty than not knowing of it. But that doesn't mean we can fully comprehend or understand God's sovereignty or God's justice. And it doesn't mean we are invited to sit in judgment on whether this was a good idea on God's part. The doctrine, Calvin thinks, was revealed to bless us, to offer those three benefits I've spoken of, but it wasn't given to us to tickle our ears. So let me move on to something else we cannot fully understand, but that we do need to understand at least in part. When I teach Calvin's doctrine to my students, remember I'm not just teaching Presbyterians. I've got Methodists, Baptists, Charismatics, Pentecostals, Episcopalians, and occasional Roman Catholic, and uh, even a few Lutherans, maybe more. So let me tell you what I tell them. On the one hand, and I really mean this, I don't care if you are not converted by this excellent lecture to believe in the doctrine of predestination. The doctrine does not stand or fall by whether we believe it. If it's true, it's true whether we know it or not and whether we believe it or not. On the other hand, I will be at least moderately disappointed if you hang on to an understanding of the human will that I regard as inflated and idolatrous. Now, at this point, Heinrich Bullinger is extremely helpful and very clear. In his second Helvetic Confession, uh, which may be on the flip side, some of it, uh, of your handout, there's no test, so no need to memorize. He states concisely that although we were created with free will, our wills were damaged at the fall and are consequently enslaved by sin. They remain enslaved until grace intervenes. Our new life in Christ begins to restore our wills, but in this life our wills remain weak. Now, all along, we really do have a will, and Bullinger is very insistent on the point, but we shouldn't exaggerate what that will can do. This strikes me as immensely realistic. It explains a lot of the struggle in my own life. Why bad habits are so hard to break. Why good habits can be so hard to make. Why I retrace my character flaws over and over again. But the second Helvetic Confession is also encouraging. We may still sin, but friends, we are in recovery. Reformed and Augustinian theology ought to be credited then, above all, for having a sober view of the human self. 
in many ways, a truly modern or contemporary understanding of the complex self. We can use insights from our Reformed heritage to make a case in our preaching that salvation by grace alone is not just some sentimental thought, but a doctrine that truly confronts the modern and the postmodern self in all its brokenness. Here are three such insights. First, Augustine is surely correct about the complexity of the will. I know, it's almost as, as if he read the Bible, like where Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. Who can understand it? Now, this lesson shouldn't be a surprise because psychologists and psychiatrists have been telling us of the role of our subconsciousness for over a century now. Do you know yourself? Do you really understand what you do and why you do it? Most of the time... I don't. Perhaps you never sin or act in selfish ways, but probably you do. I do. So why do we do what we know is wrong, whether it involves self-indulgence, anger, deceit, selfishness? Why are our wills so unstable? Lots of people will claim that they have free will, but wouldn't we also want to notice the ways that they're free choices are affected by nature and nurture, by environment, circumstances, personality, and mood swings. If we're going to talk about free will, friends, we need to do so with sophistication. Our parishioners need to hear this message with sophistication. So you might ask yourself whether you've even used your free will today. What would that look like? When the alarm goes off, do you deliberate afresh whether to get up? Do you analyze which shirt to wear? Or do you grab whatever's close to hand? Maybe like someone I won't name, you grab the shirt that's lying on the floor because by doing so, the decision is easily made and you've cleaned the bedroom at the same time. How many of your decisions are not really decisions at all, but they are habits? And what has formed your habits? Indeed, let me ask this. What has shaped your taste buds? When you go to one of those restaurants with a hundred entrees, what goes on inside you? Do you really make a rational choice about what to order? Or do you flip back and forth between the two entrees that you tell yourself, oh, I just can't resist? You know, it's lovely to find a menu that has so much metaphysical power over us. Ah, death by chocolate. Is that a rational choice? Did you read the name of that dessert? At what point then are you really using your will? Maybe you're on a diet and you think your will is resisting temptation, but why not use your will once and for all to just decide that you won't find this thing or that thing even tempting at all, ever? Why do our wills so often unmake their own decisions and commitments? Augustine reminds us that our wills may be free to make choices, but they remain enslaved. The Second Helvetic Confession reminds us that our wills are weak, but recovering. Modern psychology reminds us that our wills are affected by an ocean of unseen factors. In all of this, we can see that our wills need to be formed by the grace of God. 
There's another point from Augustine, however, worth amplifying. Nothing is more American than asserting our right to choose candidates, brand preferences, cars, homes, spouses. It was a cornerstone of Pelagius's theology that without free choice, there is no humanity left in us. I'm sure you can hear similar views expressed in any congregation. So let's use Augustine again to challenge this. Does choice make us human? Augustine did not think so. Is God free? Absolutely. But does God choose? Does God deliberate? Actually, no. God's wisdom and power enable God always to know and always to do that which is the highest good. So, do you want to have free choice or do you want to be like God? Augustine wanted to be like God, not to have to sort out good choices from powerful temptations, not to have to deliberate, but to have his character confirmed and stabilized for all eternity in the unchanging goodness that is God. So what do you hope for in heaven? A menu with infinite choices or the constancy, the constancy of the vision of God? Now, here we could try a thought experiment. Is love free? Well, part of me would want to say, yeah, I guess we'd say so. We might even say that love is the pinnacle of human freedom. Okay, so I want you all to think of someone you love very much. Spouse, parent, child, significant other, close friend. Now, I'm not going to look up. Close your eyes for the next five seconds. I want you to use your free will and stop loving that person. Just shut it off, okay? One, two, three, four, five. Okay. How'd you do? Did you stop? Why not? Isn't love free? Let's go deeper. How did you come to fall in love with that person who came to mind? Do you know? Were you in control? Luther's spiritual director, John Staupitz, raised exactly this question. Isn't the problem of divine election, he said to Luther, isn't the problem really the problem of how people fall in love with God? Can you make someone fall in love with you? Or can you make someone fall in love with God? How does that happen? Is it a free act? Or is that just not the question? You see... If free choice makes us human, what happens to those who lose this faculty or who never had it? If your humanity depends on your ability to make decisions, what do we say when Alzheimer's takes over? And I know this story. If we belong to God in life and death, surely we belong to God not just in our competence, but also in our senility. Here, too, God's grace trumps our volition. For a final perspective on God's relationship to our real selves, I want to remind you of how Aquinas explained God's working within the will, echoing in many ways what we read in Philippians 2, 12, and following, that God is at work in us both to work 
and to will his good pleasure. Is it a violation of our freedom or our autonomy if God works within us? Those who defend free will have sometimes said so. But I want you to think about your own experience with God. I'd like you to think of a time when you felt led by the Holy Spirit, specifically perhaps some time when God's guiding presence was so close and you found yourself in unlikely circumstances, maybe doing unlikely things, maybe caring for someone like a stranger, or maybe you found yourself sharing the gospel to the last person on earth you ever thought would ever want to hear that, and you were kind of glad that that was the case. And you find yourself in those unlikely circumstances, and you kind of realize, to use the current evangelical speak, oh my, there's a God thing going on. Now, were those circumstances, and was that time a violation of your personhood? Or was it rather the height of freedom to live those moments within the will of God with no distraction? I would vote for the latter, and it strikes me that this is a vision that needs to be communicated to Christians today, that our highest freedom lies not in autonomy, but in belonging to God, indeed in being God's obedient creature. Now, in moving towards a conclusion, let me reiterate that the Reformed doctrine of predestination is not very practical. It does have benefits, but there are many things it does not address or resolve. Fortunately, we have other doctrines and other scriptures that will help us. So, for example, the doctrine of predestination doesn't tell us for whom we should pray or to whom we should preach. Instead, we are obliged to pray for all, including our enemies, and to proclaim the gospel throughout the earth. Those are instructions that come from a reliable source, by the way. They stand next to these other texts, and no one in the New Testament seems to think there's a contradiction to worry about. That is one thing about the Reformed doctrine of predestination. The only person who can know your election is you, and that comes only by faith. You can't know the election of anybody else, and nobody can know the reprobation of anyone else, including oneself. So Calvin urges us to approach everyone armed with a, what he called a judgment of charity. If someone names the name of Christ, we should be prepared to accept their profession of faith at face value. Now, the doctrine of predestination is also no good for helping us plan stuff. Election is not determinism. We are exhorted by Scripture to do certain things and to make certain choices. We are never invited to second-guess the way God works. Commands in the Bible remain commands. Likewise, Calvin had little patience with people who lapse into a kind of super-spirituality. God gave us the gift of prudence, he said, because God expects us to use it. In other words, if it looks like rain, that doesn't mean God has predestined you to get wet. It more likely means you should take an umbrella when you leave home. Now, let me note also that neither side of this debate is somehow in a better position with respect to the commands of Scripture. I'm thinking in particular of the claim that predestination makes prayer superfluous. If a person is predestined, they say, that person will be saved with or without my prayers. 
Only if there really is such a thing as free choice does it make sense to pray for someone. I think that's a deeply flawed analysis. If, if John's salvation depends on John's free choice, doesn't it compromise John's freedom if you pray for him? Well, what should we pray in any case? We certainly couldn't pray that God would manipulate John by uh, influence his choosing or willing, could we? What could we pray? If the free will is impervious to external influences, as Pelagius asserted, how do we come to faith? Now, see, I don't think we are invited to either extreme. I think the God who is sovereign over all life has commanded us to pray for others. However God may work in the lives of men and women, God will act in a way that establishes and deepens the integrity of their personhood rather than negating or destroying it. Again, the Bible never invites us to second-guess the command to pray. Okay, now I really am going to conclude. Uh, I've been arguing not only that the doctrine of salvation by grace alone is a wonderful doctrine, but that faithful adherence to this Reformation insight ought to recognize the continuity between grace alone and a doctrine of election, even as grace alone ought to challenge foolish accounts of human free will and human decision-making. To that end, I've suggested that predestination is indeed a biblical doctrine as well as a respected, if often misunderstood, teaching within the Christian tradition. In my opinion, the most common objection to the doctrine is that free will and human responsibility are thereby destroyed. So I've tried to argue not that we don't really have free will, but that our wills and our persons are much more complicated than we admit. Moreover, the objection that freedom is destroyed if God is sovereign over our wills is not really true to genuine Christian experience. Traditionally, the doctrine of predestination has been upsetting to many people, and all kinds of curious questions get raised, almost always questions the Bible never invites us to ask. Without a doubt, there are congregations in my denomination where you'd be rather ill-advised to preach on Romans 9 through 11 as your candidating sermon. But for me, the issue actually is not about preaching election. The issue is rather for preaching to be informed by what the Bible says about election, including a sober view of the human will and the overwhelming good news of God's sovereign grace working within us. So, let me leave you with a thought that you can find expressed by Calvin in his Institutes and by Bullinger in the Second Helvetic Confession, and it's a word of advice that I would pass on to every Christian who struggles with this doctrine. Namely, let Christ be the mirror of your election. What does that mean? Well, among other things, it means that we are not saved because we believe in a doctrine of election. We are saved by Christ. As I said earlier, you don't need to believe in election to be elect. In this passage of the Institutes, Calvin urges his hearers to draw near to Jesus Christ above all. It's foolish to go to the mirror and stare at your own image as if you could somehow discern in yourself some magnificent and determinative sign of election. If you want to know if you are elect, there is only one sort of question needful and one focus for our proclamation. 
Do you believe in Christ? Do you know the fellowship of Jesus Christ? Do you know the love of God that has been poured out through the Holy Spirit? And does that spirit within your heart simply burst forth with Abba, Father? Well, if so, then you know the grace of God to which alone you may credit your salvation and redemption. And if so, it might interest you to know that none of this, indeed nothing about you, surprised God. And as it happens, you're also among the elect. Thanks be to God. May this knowledge keep you humble and truly free you from fear. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.